0: I'll lead off with saying that as much as Joe identified himself as a clinician, I am not a clinician. Uh, I'm the guy who gets you paid. Uh, So hopefully that works out. Um, I want to start by asking you, show of hands, since, again we talked about sort of the types of people who can and should do this work, broadly known as community paramedicine. How many of you will do pretty much what you need to do to take care of your patients? Show of hands. How many of you feel that insurance companies do the same thing? Okay, so you guys are what I call good people. Uh, And so my job is to get you paid. So the conversations that have happened in this room so far this morning uh, really touch on what I think are some really tremendous takeaways. And I I know I wanna make sure I'll leave time for Q&A for Joe, it's a a really remarkable uh, deep dive. Um, But in the several years that I've been working on the data side of this business to translate what you do, into the language of those who will ultimately pay for it um, and accomplish things like moving from reimbursement, for example, which means payback for something that you've expended, right? I'm gonna reimburse you for the drink you bought me or the coffee you, you you bought me and I'm going to instead compensate you for a job well done because, you know, face it, that's what we're talking about here, right? We're going out, we're taking care of people, we're having positive outcomes, we wanna get paid. Ultimately, it comes down to the question of proof, and that really is what I think Joe Tupp touched on several times today, and he touched on, I guess, some of these areas that are really important towards not only sustainability, but growth of these programs. So the question becomes, for all of you who raised your hand about doing all that you can to take care of your patients, how many of you would say that you are empowered to prove to someone else that the impact of what you did is what made them better? Show of hands not nearly as many, right? So that's what we're talking about here. So in the research that I have done in this area, there are a couple takeaways that are just summarized here and I'll dive into each of them a little bit more. First is something that sometimes gets vegetables tossed in my direction, but I'll say it again and say it proudly. Mobile integrated health or community paramedicine or community health paramedic, whatever name you want to call it, is not a clinical program. It is a data program. I say that because your clinical program is everything that you do anyway. Right? The clinical practice that you do, whether you have a community paramedicine program or not, you will still, as you all raised your hands pretty much in this room, right? you will do what it takes. So whether you are rolling code three or you're showing up in a QRV or a Prius, you're the clinical program. Right? That exists anyway. The question now is, do I know who you are before you get there? Right? If you're going to show up within 24 to 48 hours, and again, 10 to 14 days later, and again, 30 days later, and again, 365 days later, and we should talk a little bit about that 30-day window and whether it's enough, right? that is a question of, do I know what you had before? Do I know where you are now? And do I know where we want you to get? That's a data question, not a clinical question. So the first and foremost question is, do you have the information? Do you have access to record the information and pull that information out? So that's really one. And then the question is, so follow the money, right? We're talking about money, right? So at the end of the day, who benefits from the work that you are doing? And this is where the challenge of readmission avoidance becomes a little bit touchy, depending on your community, depending on whether we're having a pandemic and depending on whether in that scope, the uh, particular phase of the pandemic, the ED, for example, is overwhelmed or dramatically underwhelmed. Right. There was a period over the last 18 months where readmission avoidance was a dirty word to facilities that wanted every patient they could get. Uh, and I'm so glad that Joe mentioned this, this uh, discussion of the penalty. Right. Show of hands if you've heard of the readmission penalty. How many of you think it's a fine? Right. So this is an interesting distinction that doesn't often get discussed, but it's of critical importance at the economic level. The readmission penalty is a discount in payment And the misunderstanding of this in terms of how hospitals get paid has plagued community paramedicine programs for at least, least since 2015. The readmission penalty is a reduction in revenue. It is a discount. It is not negative revenue. There is still money coming in from CMS and I believe at last count that discount capped at 3% of the payment rate. So the question is if you were a hospital and you were going to get paid 97 cents on the dollar instead of 100 percent on the dollar would you still want the 97 cents if the choice is zero right so that's a that's a problem when you start saying well i'm going to keep you out of the hospital you're going to keep money out of my mouth but if i have a choice between someone who's going to pay me a dollar or someone who's going to pay me 97 cents i'm going to take the dollar Right. So when the when the, the conversation turns to readmission avoidance, it becomes one of relative revenue, not of total revenue. There's no money coming out of the hospital in terms of readmission. There's just less. It frees up a bed for a higher revenue patient. But that difference can be a lot of money when that's going to be a heart patient right? or a stroke patient as opposed to a bum leg. So that starts to matter a lot. So follow the money who benefits from the work that you are doing, right? And that's where we get into these buckets. And so the first is the one that folks often talk about, this shared savings model that came out a number of years ago and kind of gave rise to community paramedicine as a thing. And it was the offset of costs for care facilities. So again, talking about keeping patients out of the hospital who might otherwise be coming back in, getting that number higher so that the hospital can get that from that 97 cents to that dollar, right? There is a question of benefit for you, How do you benefit from that, right? So this has been a challenge for a long time when it comes to this conversation around, if we are the ones that are helping you get paid that dollar instead of 97 cents, Mr. Hospital Manager, don't we deserve a piece of that? Seems like a pretty logical conversation, right? Well, that was where the shared savings model came from. But again, the shared savings model is a data-driven program. In fact, when it was originally conceived, it was a three-year straight-line cost average on a given patient. But in order to be able to measure that, you have to have the data on what that patient cost the system over three years. And A, not a lot of places have that. But even of the ones who did, what is the impact on your operation? right? So what is the contribution that you have done to be able to say, this is how we kept these patients out? And if you do keep the patient at home, which benefits the care facility, doesn't that cause you the problem of not getting paid? because? Today we get paid to transport, right? So if we don't get paid, not only are we helping somebody else make more money, we're actually taking money out of our mouths, right? So this becomes the disjoint. So looking at the cost offsets means that you have to be able to say, based on what we have done for you, you are making more money. We need a piece of that. And here was the effort and here was the cost. And here, if you are gonna talk about reimbursement anywhere, here is the cost of our gasoline. And our time, because ambulances don 't get powered by smiles and coffee right although sometimes it might seem that way right so in a tax funded environment it 's a little bit different because there may be a base underneath you, but if you 're a private service, for example, what is the amount of effort that you are putting into getting somebody their money, and therefore what 's your pro rata share of that right? again data driven program but goes directly to the amount of money you should be getting paid now the second one has to do with those high risk patients so show of hands how many of you enjoy going out on a call particularly for someone for example with a substance use disorder and then finding out once you woke them up that they don't want you to go anywhere near them ever happen you get paid on those calls that's a problem right so so this is one of those untapped areas i actually refer to it as community paramedicine 3.0 where community paramedicine 1.0 were those evident those programs that showed this could be done Right, that that, this was safe. Everyone, when you think about sort of the the big programs that get talked about a lot, Pittsburgh one that comes up a lot, certainly some in Texas and in California and Reno and so on. Um, Community Paramedicine 2.0 sought to measure the impact, right, so you start to get into these conversations on what have we actually done? Very much like Joe was talking about. 3.0 focuses on what I refer to as the chronically acute, right, so these are people who are gonna come through your system a lot, but oftentimes they look like emergency calls and then you wake them up and now they're know they don't want you to touch them anymore so that uncompensated care rate is extremely expensive it's so expensive it's about three billion dollars across the country now for the industry so ask yourself and if you haven't already asked yourself what portion of that three billion dollars should you be getting right because that's money that is going out that you are spending in terms of real time real expense liability gas equipment right which is all coming out of your per mile cost-adjusted rate, but you're not getting any of that if you're uncompensated for this particular call. So when you start talking about proactive approaches, and that's we'll get to in a minute, uh, a significant portion of the sustainability of these programs comes down to, at the very least, not losing money doing it, right? Making money is a separate thing. We're going to get to that in buckets three and four. But in number two is try not to get hosed in the process. Right? Because at the end of the day, if you're losing money, sustainability is going to be an issue. If you're not making money, but you're even keeled, you're doing that service. Right? Again, going back to you guys being nice people. Right? You're not in this industry because it's the most lucrative, there are definitely easier ways to make a buck. Right? Yes? I would agree um, you know it's, it's always straightforward never confusing and there's never questions of pay equity or anything like that so to the degree that you can at least be on an even keel but have that ability to go home knowing you did a job well done that's great let's get you there so that's number two reduce those uncompensated care and there are significant ways of doing that particularly by partnering in relationships right as Joe mentioned so when we talk about referrals this is an interesting one because again so much of the conversation comes down to patients being referred to you right we get a call from someone that says can you take care of my patient and then you have to eat that cost right one way or another because you get back into buckets number one and number two take this patient because they're a high-risk patient they're going to be very expensive for me so i'm going to offshoot i'm going to offload that cost onto you and it's going to reduce my burden When was the last time you went back to someone and said, but you get paid for every one of these people who comes through your program, so you should be paying me for that referral. Anyone get paid to refer patients into other programs? So let me me give you a thought to take away. There is so much money that you guys are not touching. It'll make your head spin. And I'll tell you one example of that is CDC money, for example, called the Overdose to Action Program, sort of bridges number two and three. So overdose to action happens to be the money behind one of the programs that I'm doing in Connecticut. I'm happy to give you some links on stuff like this. But as an example, there are many colors of money. Any of you heard of Purdue Pharmaceuticals? Sackler family, OxyContin, right? There is extraordinary amounts of money that are floating around from a very large set of settlements that are literally unaccounted money. So I believe it was roughly 217 or so million dollars that went to the state of Oklahoma to build opioid interventional programs. EMS has access to that money, so why don't you go get them, right? And instead of talking about how CMS can plug that hole, look for other colors of money. For patients that go into the clinics that we're talking about, right? These rehab clinics, the uh, residential facilities, halfway houses, again, not powered by coffee and smiles. There is money behind those. They're just not the same money that you go after. Right. So they're not necessarily CMS, or if they are CMS, they're not CMS ambulance funds, but well, it doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of monies there. There are billions of dollars to solve these problems. You just need to find them. So looking at what you're doing, are you referring souls into a program that gets paid for every one of those souls? Well, if you're doing that, they get paid. Why don't you get a piece of it? Right. And it's not a kickback. Right? They're not saying, pay us if you bring this patient, we will give you some money. You are saying, I'm doing something for you. You're going to take care of this patient. This is the right place to go. I'm not excluding somebody else. Right, So there's no anti-competitive behavior. It's that you are putting this person where they're going to get the best care and they are going to get paid for that part of the shared nature of this health ecosystem is that there's a piece of that that may come to you which allows you to keep doing that work right it's all up and up it's all legal etc cetera, etc cetera. but finding following the bouncing ball of the money to see the many colors of money allows you to get compensated for the various parts of the ecosystem that you touch and you do anyway that came up in the earlier presentation today there's a lots of different organizations that benefit one way or another by the way faith-based organizations not sometimes paid on coffee and smiles there is literally an office i worked at another one at the white house a couple years ago there is an office in the executive office of the president of the united states called the the office of faith-based initiatives there is a lot of money that goes to those organizations and they are about building community making communities resilient If you put in a when is the last time any of you put in a grant application or a funding application for get grants for a minute when is the last time you put in a funding application to one of the organizations that is funded by that color of money and said we can do some of this work for you we're doing it anyway wait we're ultimately sending patients into a community where they're gonna be in your bucket and you're getting paid for that help us do more of that okay and so that leads to I'm sorry, that's number three. And that leads to number four. And so number four, show of hands if you've ever heard of actuarial risk. <laughs> Raise them high. I only see two, three, four, it's not a lot. Okay, and have you heard of insurance risk? <laughs> that's actuarial risk. Actuarial risk is one of those buzzwords that I ask this question a lot in different places. And I'm always surprised at how many people don't know what this is. This is the way you get paid to do the work that you're doing. So the big money that's not, you know, coming through grants and other types of legal settlements and things like that, the, the ongoing pay us for our work, that's the actuarial risk. For folks who talk about needing insurance to come in and pay for things and give you a code, that's actuarial risk. If you don't understand, actuaries measure risk. That's what they do. And to make it really gory and quite um, hard to swallow essentially what an actuarial risk table looks at is how long you're going to how long you will live before you die so basically how long before you die and how much money gets made or spent in the process that's it that's what an actual table looks like looks at right so the longer you live and the cheaper you are the lower your risk and the shorter you live the longer you live and the more expensive you are the higher your risk so if you're really expensive but you die young okay i mean sucks for you but from an insurance perspective right so ultimately the goal of actuaries is to reduce your cost of care and make you live longer so that you can put more money into the system so the question is how do you do that how do you impact folks such that they can live longer and be cheaper sorry and for all of the discussions of of different colors of money and that, that you all will do to take care of your patients. Uh, I've identified in the research and the literature identifies just four areas, one of which has been talked about a lot today, which I'm actually pretty excited to hear about, including a couple of times, both in Joe's presentation and the previous one in Shane's presentation. So there are four, not more. And ultimately it comes down to, and there may be more eventually, but the ones that the literature supports. And they ultimately come down to the question that Joe asked near the top of his presentation when you were talking about STEMI versus CHF, etc. Someone said non-compliance, right? I forget what it was. Someone over here said non-compliance. Okay. So the challenge in getting paid following the money is that you need to be able to prove that you're the one who deserves the money. Right? You guys do a good job, right? Save patients every day. Try to, do, try to be the best that you can, go home, having done a good job today, right? But being able to prove that your actions ultimately kept somebody healthy over time is extremely hard to do. For example, in an EPCR, that is, first of all, there's still an allergy in this industry to good data, but that's a conversation for another time. Um, but the idea that you have incident-specific data that doesn't string together over time, it's extremely hard to, input it to, to demonstrate that any given encounter had a long-term impact on that person's prognosis, right? So we need to get there. So in order to be able to translate your actions to what will ultimately get someone to say, you are healthier because of me, we have to identify things that you can do that will make them healthier because of you. And those fall into four areas. The first, harmful habit reduction, also known as consumption of things you shouldn't be putting in your bodies. Right. So when we talk about things like the chronically acute, right, these go by many names from opioids and opiates to amphetamines to um, bleach for curing COVID. I mean, I don't know. So, you know, I Tide pods, take a pick bath salts. Really who came up with that idea. So um, reducing harmful habits, reducing consumption of tobacco and alcohol. Right. The the fact is, in fact, I, I don't have it in here, but I, I can happy to show anyone afterwards. Uh, there is a compelling graph that one can show uh, that is in a published peer reviewed journal of the relative risk associated with reduction in tobacco consumption. Right. So if you can show that someone came into your program with chronic emphysema and six packs a day. I Actually, have a, have a friend of mine who died of this and he was smoking with I didn't even know you could blow your eyebrows off because you're smoking with the oxygen tank? That's the craziest thing I ever heard. So I mean, he would do it. This was one of the smartest people I knew. And I love the guy. He was a family friend since I was a child. And he'd walk outside onto his porch with his oxygen tank and light up. And I, I didn't understand it. Um, okay, so if you can show that you get this person for six packs a day to two packs a day, money rains down on your head. If you can do the same thing with, drug, with consumption of other harmful narcotics, opioids, etc., they're extraordinarily risky and extremely expensive. But can you prove that your actions of following up, being proactive, can do that? And they can. And I'll give you an example in the interest of, of my friend Joe and his stories. I'll give you an example of one. Um, Aravaca Fire Department in southern Arizona. Uh, was the one of the first places that that brought this case to me and it was really telling they are about six miles from the Mexican border a lot of undocumented folks work there a lot of cash payments at warehouses and things like that and so they would talk about how the fact that every Friday folks would get paid in cash right every Saturday they knew where to find the patients What, say, oftentimes, it was right outside the bar. I don't think they even made it there. Right? But the point is, if you know that you that folks are going to be in a particular part of town, if you know that they get paid in cash and so there's a risk, then you can be there. right? And if you can be there and your action being there on Friday afternoon kept that person off the sauce, then you can show that your actions helped and got you paid. So harmful habit reduction. The second is med reconciliation and adherence. And med, medication non-adherence is unbelievably expensive. Um, yeah, almost done. Okay. Got it. two bullet points. Thanks, sorry. Clearly I talked too much, everyone knows this. Um, and if you didn't already know it, now you know it. So medication reconciliation and the ability to say, did I keep you on the appropriate medications? Did I keep you from being, from either taking the wrong meds at the wrong time of day, or by the way, if you started out your program compliant with your meds, and then by the end of 30, 60, 90, 180, 365 days, you are now compliant with 80% of those meds. Money rains down on your head. Think about all of the risks that you offset, right? If you keep somebody from being syncopal when they don't otherwise need to, right? And so all the costs that come from that. So if you can measure that impact, you can show how you deserve a piece of that, and it goes directly to the actions you're doing. The third one, and this is the bingo that's come up a couple times today. Um, So those first two are are very data driven. Um, The third and fourth are more intuitive and human and also can be measured in a very compelling way, but less so in charting and more so in what you've actually done. Uh, Malnutrition reduction, food security, right? Turns out it's a whole lot of people who call for help because they're hungry, right? Or they're eating the wrong things. And the funny thing is if you get them the right food, they stop calling. Uh, One of the programs that I had the privilege of working with, the Alameda Fire Department in Alameda, California, Uh, and their numbers orbited around a 75% reduction in readmission within 30 days. Some of their most telling stories were folks who literally, in fact one in particular, a woman who was bedridden and visually impaired, qualified for food stamps, and was chronically malnourished. And they were trying to figure out how does that make any sense? She qualifies for it. Turns out in California, because we're brilliant, we do everything right uh, you have to have an id to get the food stamps but you have to go to the dmv to get the id and because she was bedridden and visually impaired she couldn't get to the dmv so she kept staying hungry every time she got discharged home so the cp team took her to the dmv got her the id and she called once in the following year for something completely early she'd fallen and hurt her leg or something and so she went from calling literally several times a day to calling once in a year because they got her the food That's a direct intervention that you can do that will save money, make people healthier. And at the end of the day, there are resources that get paid to give people food. Right. So they are getting people in their in their ecosystem that you now have some claim to their ecosystem. The following and this is what I'll end on as a very emotional piece, but one of the most directly impactful economically loneliness reduction research out of the united kingdom at the london school of economics and by the way i'm happy to give you guys all the citations on this if you want to read the paper found in british pound sterling a three pound return on investment for every one pound spent reducing loneliness a three to one roi just by giving someone a friend it turns out there are startup companies raising millions of dollars one called papa another one's called honor like there are all they're doing is literally assigning In fact, college kids largely as a part-time job to people who live by themselves and whose health deteriorates, as all of you know, because of the fact that they don't have someone to come and talk to them about the grandkids who either can't because of COVID, for example, or won't come see them and having a friend to check in on them has a direct economic benefit. So if you are literally going into places where you're going out anyway and spending three hours, what is the economic impact of that work that you were doing anyway, right? Because you're good people. And it turns out if you can translate that work into actuarial risk, Not only do you get to be good people, but so do the insurance companies, because they're going to be more than happy to pay you for keeping that person healthier than they otherwise would have been and less expensive than they would have been simply because you went and lent an ear. And speaking of lending an ear, thank you guys for letting me jabber on here.